Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark. It is episode 79. Gee, Mark, we're closing in on... 100 we'll have to sort out a bit of a prize for one of our listeners and um, hopefully if if part of the prize is something you're providing mark you need to um, get moving and uh, actually get the prize out there fairly soon after it's announced rather than several weeks i'm not i'm not well if they get it before 200 that should be fine shouldn't it yeah that's right yes not that i'm having to dig at you but um you I, endlessly but, have it, but I, I I completely deserve them. I still haven't seen the. Did you send me the pic of the fiftieth um, episode um, print that you sent to the winner, Mark? I don't so, know whether you have. You did. Well, if I haven't, I'll send you. I'll send you a copy. Send it um, to me again. Can I do it right now. Yes, I can. You do, do that right now, now while I. I um, I do a little bit of a promo, and um, I think we've uh, we need some more patrons, um, and that is going to patreon.com vetgurus, or even easier, go to our website vetgurus.com, and um, click on the tab "Help Us," and it it is doing exactly that. So throwing us a bone, as we like to call it, so giving us a little bit of money to help pay for our production costs, and it could be a, a monthly contribution, which is what Patreon is all about. You could always do a once-off and then and then quit doing it and just give us, a, well, you know, we'd like somebody to give us the equivalent of a cup of coffee, you know, three, five, ten dollars whatever the equivalent is in your country, or... $30 if you're in Venice, Mark, um, in the square <laughs> there is, is what they tend to charge, don't they? Um, and um, we'd very muchly appreciate it. Um, it would be fantastic. And we have a, a, a few patrons that are giving us monthly donations, which is fantastic. And the beauty so, of yeah. Patreon um dot com is that it doesn't you know that doesn't have to be a monumental amount the little amounts add up don't they brendan they really uh, help us and while it might not seem all that much um it really it uh, helps us to defray the costs and we really value listeners and patreons absolutely and we've we've we allocate our patrons different names so the tier, the lowest tier mark is is one dollar Australian a month, and that's called a bug. So you become a bug, and the next one's rabbit, and it kangaroo, etc. Um, Did you, you know, make that, Brendan? Well, how obvious is that, Mark? Yeah, um, of course. Um, I'm hoping one day we have one. I, I put an aspirational one there, Mark, and that's a guru. So if somebody gives us fifty dollars or more. Or fifty dollars per month, even better. Um, and there's only one guru, or apart from the two of us, you will become a patron guru of um, of our podcast. And there's extra little things that go on along with joining at the higher tiers there, including a shout out to people. And you know, if we ever manage to get a, an actual guru patron, um, we would interview you. 
that's you, listener, um, who's our patron, um, our guru patron, um, and we do a whole episode on you or a topic of your choice. So, um, yeah, have a look at our website or go to patreon.com, gurus, and, um, yeah, a bit of fun, and um, we'd like to do it, and um, we'd like to keep doing it, and that's the reason why we um, occasionally ask for money. Yeah. So enough asking for money, Mark. Um, what have you been up to? I've had, we've had an interesting week in the clinic. Um, we've had a lot of um, animals dying, Mark. Some, some oh. the, you know, one of those weeks when you yes. get the long-term, some of those long-term cases that you're just plugging away with, plugging away with, and you get that that perfect storm, I think, um, and, and you end up with some of these long-term, and they, a couple of them have been dogs and cats and not just the exotics where... They've come to the end of the end of their their journey, and um, a bit of a sad time. So we've had some, yeah, a few tears shed on both sides of the consult room table, and um, yeah. But you know, um, at least we've been able to help them along. And some of them have been some long term palliative care cases that I think we've been, you know, we've been proud of keeping them going um, for much longer than they would otherwise and um but it's still sad to have that last bit and um gee you know really you really appreciate how much people become attached to their animals you know and um you know i certainly realize that when one of our animals have to be have to be euthanized but um yeah but we're lucky and then we've got a lot of very good very good clients but it was one of those weeks mark what about you look fortunately we haven't had a week like that this week but i know exactly what you mean and uh and it does bring to mind um one of the the uh um where am i one of the cases that i did have this week a long-term client who um whose guinea pig had uh had reached the point of quality of life question, um, and um, and it just your comments there just reminded me that um, particularly as uh, veterinarians and particularly as veterinarians who deal with unusual patients, we um, we get to I don't know be exposed to people at that um, very very vulnerable time that uh, time when there's an awful lot of. Um, emotion and it, it is a privilege and a responsibility and um and i was I, I just listening to you i i know uh, it was almost like a bit of a reflection there are times when there's tears all round um uh, at those times um and uh, that's not um that's not a bad thing when people care a lot and uh, they obviously do about a lot of the animals we get to see um it's yes. not bad that they let it out Yes, so yeah, that's a bit of a downer to start with, isn't it, Mark? But that's um, that's what's been happening in um, in the clinic. Although I had did have an interesting win with a frog that came in that um, Diana brought in, and I thought it was going to be a surgical case. It was a frog that had a very what looked like a swollen toe, Mark, and. Um, had a bit of a poke around with the spot, and it was actually many, many, many retained sheds. Oh, wow. The toe. And um, I, I wish I had have um, taken a before and after photo because I just gently teased, teased it. I had a bit of a club foot. Um, I was actually over sort of two toes, and I managed to sort of tease it all off, and it was just this big onion ring of all these retained sheds and came off beautifully, and um, everybody was happy. I went home with a little bit of a combination of a – 
with um, a bit of the MLAP um, uh, local anesthetic cream um, because it ended up being a little bit ulcerated and a tiny bit of a ooze of, of blood from, from after I'd pulled it all off. But the actual toes looked like they'll be viable. So was a was a good one. It's great when you get those little fun ones, don't you, that um, that um, are unexpected and you, and you get a win. So that was good. Always good. And I, but they they I think there's probably uh, particularly for those sort of cases. There's two sorts of groups, isn't there? There's ones where you know you, you've got a set plan and the surgery goes according to relatively strict predetermined outlines, and then um, then the ones that you do go into and you've got to like. MacGyver along the way. Um, you've got to, like, you know, do a little bit of um, of figuring out what you're going to do as you get there. I always approach those with some considerable trepidation, but crikey's they're satisfying afterwards. And that's why we do it, Mark, isn't it? It's so much fun when you get those ones. Um, you have the ups and the downs, but, gee, it's um, it's just great to have such a big variety of things, and um, I think we're very lucky being able to been able to do that. Let's jump into a news story, and I think you want to. Well, you are going to take the first <laughs> one. And <laughs> um, what do you have for us? Well, I'm excited, Brendan. I'm really excited. I'm excited because these photos um, uh, remind me of some uh, planned holidays I have for later in the year. Um, we're talking about um, uh, an article from the Guardian. Um, it's uh, in their environmental section and it reports on the underwater photographer of the year and it uh, lists the winning photographs and geez you, everyone knows how much we love photography um, in general but these photos are just intoxicating aren't they Brendan and and I particularly um, you know I always enjoy the photos of um, the sort of uh, uh, I don't know I think of them as um, scientific photos, you know, those specimen-type photos. Um, yes. but, but when they're combined with um, with a, uh, a degree of, well, art, art, artistic talent, um, then, then, geez, the images are just, um, well, inspirational, aren't they? There is one photograph in the, um, uh, the heat run by Scott Portelli in the behaviour category about uh, a third of the way through. Um, I'm particularly excited because um, that's one of the holidays I've got planned for later in in the year, that Scott Portelli takes that photo in uh, in, um, Tonga, I believe, Um, and similar experience is available in... uh, Tahiti, and I, I hope to be able to present a very similar photo to you, Brendan, of the heat run of the humpback whale. Well, if you can produce a photo like that, Mark, um, you can retire from veterinary science and you can go full-time into photography because, yeah, there's, there's spectacular those. And I'm, as usual, very jealous about your upcoming trips um, I don't think there's enough weeks in the year for you to uh, <laughs> to have um, the holidays that you do. I particularly like well, I like all of them obviously because they are the um, the 2019 um, category winners of the underwater photography photographer of the year. And scrolling down, one of the ones that I would like to point out, apart from all of them, is and it's about three quarters of the way down. It is the grass snake swimming along a garden pond by Jack Perks 
from the UK, and it's that um, you know I, I've, the bit of a challenge though is where he's got um, the, um, he's taken the photo of the grass snake swimming um, at the water air interface there, Mark, and the head of the snake is um, popped out above the above the um, above the water, and the rest of the snake below it, and um, you know I think. Uh, well, they're, they're quite technically challenging to get those and to, you know, he's got, he's, he's nailed it. As he they really say. Has I, I really like that one. Yeah, I really like that what one. What about the mermaid one? Yes, the mermaid one's a good one. They're all, they're all good. Yeah. They? Um, they're all, they're all good. Um, we, um, yeah, we'll have a link to this in our um, vetgurus.com um, for people who want to have a look at them. And yeah, they're all they're spectacular, um, I must admit. And there's an increase in number of the conservation sort of category um, photos there, and that includes a, one of a turtle entangled in a net, um, um, and a little bit of a confronting one, isn't it, Mark? Of the um, of the um, ray that's been um, cut up um, by, with a with a machete, um, and also one of a uh, of a plastic cup with a seahorse trapped inside it. So yeah, I encourage people to have a look at them, and um, you know they, they tell a story. I like the ones that tell a story, and as you mentioned, that c- combine um, you know photographic talent, but also with a bit of bit of artistry as well. And if you can combine a story with the art, and and also also um, good technical ability, then no wonder they end up in the in the finalists um, of that. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to the day you're you've um, you win one of those, Mark, and it, and it may not be too far off. Yeah, I I, 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 we'll see. I just love, <laughs> I just love being in a spot where I could take the like the you talk about having enough weeks in the year, and and I think it. I hearken back to um, our previous discussions about um, uh, wellness and and self care, and I do think. Um, uh, that you know, the times that we deal with those emotions uh, at work need to be counterbalanced by um, some reflection and and um, enjoyment in the natural world. And um, and yeah, there's not enough weeks in the year for me to do all the ones I want to do. Uh, but your photography just keeps getting better and better. And you just sent me that um, photo um, of the silhouette, wasn't it, um, of, of the of the bird of the 50th um, episode winner. And, um, yeah, that was an excellent. And, yes, you are correct. You had sent it to me before. so I knew I'd be yes. boring you by sending it again. Yes. Um, well, my first news story is a pretty quick one, Mark. It's about how mosquitoes sniff out human sweat. And um, I think uh, a few people already <laughs> um, had reported and knew that um, – mosquitoes and, and certain people attracted um, or mosquitoes are attracted to certain people including myself and in the past they have um, concentrated on the carbon dioxide output which um, mosquitoes love and they do mention that that um, is still a big factor in that um, mosquitoes are attracted to the CO2 which as they mentioned in this article has been mosquito coffee um, so, but the main part of this article is that they've also found that with particular species of mosquito, which is one that's responsible for the spread of Zika and dengue fever, uh, they tend to prefer human blood over other animals. And they've identified a particular protein in mosquito antennae 
which is a primary sniffing organ that is particularly adept at picking out lactic acid. So they are thinking that it is human sweat and the lactic acid that they are also attracted to, and they've gone one sec further there, showing that mutant mozzies that lack this particular protein, the IR8A protein, or have a malfunctioning version of it, were only about half as likely to settle on a human arm or sweat-stained sock as normal mosquitoes. So the thought is that they could potentially breed mozzies with poor lactic acid receptors to reduce the impact of mosquito-borne disease in human populations. So releasing, I expect, mosquitoes that um, will then breed and it'll be less effective um, sweaty people. So, uh, yeah, although one one other way of doing it is just don't be sweaty um, and, and stop sweating and, and use a bit more deodorant, Mark. Do you have – I'm a bit off on a tangent here. Do you, <laughs> what do you do when you have the clients that um, come in and, and the first <laughs> – um, I better be careful here in case any clients are listening. Um, and and one, of, one of your nurses at reception come out to you and say, Mrs. or Mr. X or Smith, let's call them Mr. Smith, has come in and, gee, he stinks. His BO is really bad. Can you please see him straight away? <laughs> and, and, um, um, well, no, it doesn't, thank goodness. Um, I'd like to say we have a, a better class of client than, <laughs> than, um, than the average veterinary clinic, but that's probably not the case. Look, I think, um, um, not- I think uh, um, there's a whole bunch of things that people, uh, uh, um, you know, don't realise about themselves. Um, and I think uh, the classic one for, for us vets is um, that it gets very frustrating to talk to people about fleas. And, and yet, as I've gotten older, I realise that there's a whole slab of population who literally could not see them even if they were there in their thousands. Um, and I think also that uh, self-awareness of, um, of uh, the natural odours of our body, it's missing in some people. So I sort of take a bit of an, you know, uh, turn the air conditioning on maybe a little bit more forcefully and, um, and uh, just try and nut it out for the 15, 20, 25 minutes that I've got to communicate with them. Though it's interesting, Brendan, I reckon I've become much more, when I was younger, I never noticed these things, probably because I stank myself. Um, <laughs> but um, but as I've gotten older, and uh, I, I don't know, they just, uh, it much more, I notice it much more, um, the breath or the body odour of the people I'm confined to the consult room with. I think the yeah the garlic breath one is always a bit tricky, isn't it? Because I'm always acutely aware of that. Because as you know, I like I like lots of um, lots of spicy food, and often it may have added garlic in there. And I'm I'm if if I think we've gone out to a restaurant the night before and I'm consulting, I try and make sure I pop a few mints before I head in there because I'm acutely aware of that. Yeah, so I just have it. I have this really powerful fan in the consult room and I turn that on it's behind me blowing towards the client but I think I overdo it a bit when I have the client walking in the room like they're in a they're, it's a mime artist you know and they're trying to push against the um push against the wind um and their hair's flowing behind them and then they say what's going on here and I say oh I just you know I'm worried about I must admit my this is this is a 
a related segue, Mark. Do you have many people fainting in your consultation room? I, I, I've got to tell you that if we're going to, I know you're trying to make this punchy, but let me tell you this story. When I was a recent graduate, we had a horse client, um, Alex, uh, who was a, a, the toughest guy hanging around horses. Anyway, he called out of hours one night and he and his girlfriend had gotten kittens and one of the kittens was really, really sick. So they bring it in and it's hugely dehydrated. At that stage in Newcastle, we had no emergency hospital. I didn't call a nurse in, so it was just me, Alex and his girlfriend. I think her name was Susan. So I said, Alex, you're a horse person and you know you deal with blood and guts and everything because horses do that stuff all the time. I've got to get a catheter into this cat. I need to do this. Can you help me? He said, yes, of course. Um, anyway, we got the kitten all set up, clipped, prepared, slid the catheter into the vein and Susan just went bang on the floor really hard. I looked Alex in the eye and I said, I've just got to take this in, mate. She's not going to fall any further. And he went glassy eyed on me and fell over on top of her. And I had to do it all myself anyway. So uh, that has happened yes. on a number of occasions where I've had um, people in the consult room. And I think you're alluding to the compact room, the medical talk and the odour. I often find that's the combination that will send yes. people uh, to a slightly paler, greener version of themselves before they hit the deck. Yes, and especially so with that odour. And, and I think we forget that when we're poking around with an abscess or something um, quite gross um, as far as the average layperson, we don't realise that we're having a great time and yet they're, they're turning greyer and greyer. And, um, yeah, I'm better than I was previously picking it up and I usually say, look, let's just open the consult room. Do I just grab a seat for a minute and I'll just take the animal out the back and that. But, yeah, I've had a... Had a couple in the last month or so that have, have, have almost got there and um, I've had to sort of catch them before they hit the floor. And, um, yeah, one particular one was a, a, a rabbit owner, a young young lady with a, a, a um, rabbit that had a really severe, deep corneal ulcer and um, it was a bit of a nightmare to get this one um, back from potentially having to remove the eye. And in the first few consults we spoke about, potentially having to remove the eye if it went bad. Um, it's actually doing fantastic now and it's virtually fully healed. Um, but in the second or third consult, when when we were really struggling to get it under control, um, she came in with one of her girlfriends and and the girlfriend um, hit the deck um, when we were there. I didn't see her come back. She hasn't come back since the girlfriend. She keeps coming on her own or with a parents um after after that but yeah it can be i think we just need to be aware of it you know and it's that whole medical and and i think you've spot on there and it's that combination of that tsunami of factors isn't it it's that it's it's the room that might be a bit confined and a little bit stuffy it's um smells and sights and and um probably a fair amount of the vet that's droning on about some medical term that um, <laughs> but, but is boring, I, the, I just, boring the crap out of them. But yeah, Just to um, complete the yeah. spectrum, though, I think you uh, highlighted another point. If you have eyes um, and you talk to people about the things that might be done inside the eye or on the surface of the eye, that does seem to be another um, trigger point for um, that nausea that um, often leads to um, uh, those inexperienced um, heading towards a, a short 
period of unconsciousness. So, um, yeah, if 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 the room is if it's hot and muggy, the room is cloistered. There's a smell, and you start talking about eyes. I suggest get a chair ready or forget Brendan's massive. Do you know? Do you know the brand in Bunnings? <laughs> in Bunnings, um, you know that which is a hardware store here in, in, here in Australia. Yeah. Um, and it's not just a hardware store; it's like hardware. You know, you you can often camp out in there. It takes several days to get from one end to the other. They are gigantic stores, hard warehouses. Um, they have fans to keep the air circulating in them, and the actual brand of fan they use in the Bunnings giant stores is um is the big ass fan. And I just imagine you having a big ass fan in the console. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say something different there, Mark. Um, excellent. <laughs> Um, what's your second news story? My second news story is um, is a little a bit. Um, I like to think of it as one that is a little bit of a, a positive story, but it definitely has a, a twin. It's a sword with two edges. Um, this is the story from our, one of our favourites, the Mother Nature Network. You can also find the story on the Guardian and a number of other places. It's the odd reason flamingos are flocking to Mumbai. Now, Mumbai, the mangroves around Mumbai are not a traditional location where large numbers of flamingos uh, have historically occurred. Um, but uh, in the early uh, nineteen, in the late nineteen eighties and early nineteen nineties, um, they started arriving, um, and uh, and they'd hang out there um, through the monsoonal, um, you know, uh, part of the year. And um, and uh, gradually the number of flamingos built up, and uh, this is a real like positive um, story in that these relatively delicate animals who's um, who really thrive in uh, the, those um, circumstances where larger numbers of them can survive together, um, uh, they were they were pretty quickly getting to twenty or forty thousand of between twenty and forty and thousand of these birds in the late 1990s and the early 2000s but the recent counts the bird counts that have been done more recently suggest mo the most recent one was 121,000 of the pink long-legged feathered birds uh, in the uh, in the mangroves or in the southern part of Mumbai and interestingly enough it's uh, it's directly the result of the city that they're there, Brandon. Um, the Suri Bay um, has uh, relatively warm tropical water, and there is a particularly large amount of industrial discharge, but not, you know, it's more fertilizer overflow. And what's happened as a result is that uh, probably algae in general, but particularly the blue green algae, which are. Uh, the flamingos filter out with the, you know, the other micro microscopic uh, um, uh, things that they feed on the um, brine shrimp-sized things, diatoms and um, uh, algae and other aquatic plants. Um, the bloom of those the algae as a result of the nitrate and phosphate levels surging in the runoff um, has led to the perfect sort of banquet for these birds. So. Even though um, there's, it's almost universally a bad thing for these pollutants to end up in, in the environment, this is one circumstance where the continued dumping of sewage and waste um, in the short term uh, actually favours the, the, uh, 
the de- development of these large flocks of uh, flamingos. Unfortunately, the actual physical mass of the sewerage, um, once the uh, um, you know the the the, the detritus, the physical uh, particles will actually sediment out and eventually dry the creek and bay where the birds are um, out unless something else is done. But, um, geez, it's 20 to 40,000 growing to 121,000. It's a pretty spectacular um, uh, number of birds um, and seeing them, some of those photos, uh, geez, they're spectacular images as well, Brendan. Yes, they are. So, who would have thought that sewerage would be would be a good thing? <laughs> um, well, the flamingos think it is at the moment, don't they? But yeah, um, and they do mention that they need to clean it all up, but um, still provide a, a habitat for the flamingos to try and um, keep the migratory birds there so i'd be interested to see what happens um, with that yes flamingos are flocking to mumbai as the as the title of that um, article says well my last one is well guess what mark it's about um, it's about sweat again <laughs> I, I did um, I'm detect a theme a, i'm on a bit of an odor run um at the moment and this is about a paper published in the journal Scientific Reports, researchers took sweat samples from seven patients with different types of epilepsy across a range of activities, such as resting, exercising, or having a seizure. And they were um, they presented the sweat to dogs, Mark, and um, they worked out that dogs can detect an odour humans emit during epileptic seizures. And I think we've spoken about it briefly before about um, epileptic um, sensing dogs um, that can sense seizures from anywhere from several minutes to you know almost an hour or so before somebody's potentially taking a take having a seizure, I'm and they think that that's pretty sure that was yeah, one of the ahead. stories. In did we reviewed that book, and um, one of the hero yes. dogs was a yes, yes, uh, yes. seizure detecting um, dog. So this is a a bit of a follow on from that, and. Um, yeah, that they've that they've um and they and there's a great little picture there of these um <laughs> aluminium cans or steel cans or buckets of, of sweat um odor from various people that this dog's wandering up and down and um having a bit of a sniff and um trying to um and pointing out to which one is is um potentially from an epileptic person or somebody who's just about to have or or has just had a had a seizure there. So yeah, so um yeah, so that's um that's my other fun little um I'm not going to say anything more about that. But, um, <laughs> dogs, dogs and their amazing senses of smell and um, ability to be um, helpers for people with with um with issues. It's fantastic. Um, so maybe I should have one of these. I'm gonna well, let's take it the next step. Maybe we should have a little dog sitting in our consult room, Mark, that can detect somebody is about to faint. Do you think we could do that? I reckon they could. They, it's the thing I found fascinating about this was that I didn't quite understand the like. We actually have a client who has a um, a seizure dog, and we have another client who has a um, a uh, um, diabetic hypoglycemic uh, episode detecting dog, and it's always fascinated me how the what are the signals, um, and we know that dogs have that different. 
array of um, you know different focus of the five senses and so something they're hearing or smelling probably not something they're seeing um, is giving them clues about uh, something that's bad um, and so it's interesting to see that um, they're actually smelling a chemical in advance that gives them warning um, at least in this particular thing so I think entirely entirely possible Brendan that you could um, set up your wonderful um, client uh body odour suitability detecting <laughs> dog in the waiting room and prepare the uh, big-ass fan in the consult room before they even get in there. And um, I think I'll train it to bark once if they have <laughs> BO and um, bark twice if they're about to faint, Mark, um, and start to worry if they bark three times there might <laughs> be something drastic about to happen, yes. Excellent. Okay, let's jump into our, our main topic and it is one that we've – We've fleshed out a lot, haven't we? We haven't even discussed this one at all, um, as usual. And that is constipation in reptiles. Um, why did I suggest this, Mark? Because, well, it's something different we haven't covered before and it's certainly something I see a reasonable a reasonable number of times throughout the year. So I might kick it off and talk about some of the species that, that I not uncommonly see this condition. So we're talking about constipation or obstipation in, in reptiles and, and the obvious one that I see a fair number of is is bearded dragons, Mark. Do you see a lot of bearded dragons that are, that are bound up? I do see. Well, and it's a little bit difficult to... Uh, whenever we talk about reptiles, it's always a bit difficult to know... Because we see more bearded dragons anyway. Is that the reason we see so many bearded dragons? Um, but certainly, just like you, we see... Uh, so I've got a question for you, Brendan, before you finish your list of species. Um, my question is, because um, we would often, we would often at the front counter have this exact, like, call. My reptile, often a bearded dragon, there are other ones, um, is constipated, can I bring it in for, you know, one of the vets to review and fix up? Um, uh, is, is that, is that the, the, the question I suppose I have? Is that the end of the story for you? Or do you think there's layers to this? Yes, that's the start. <laughs> and the, 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 gee, you've led me along there nicely, even though it wasn't planned. Yes, um, I think the key there is, especially for our our, our our staff who's answering the phone call is to um, not answer that question for the client and say, look, if you're worried about your pet, bring it in is, is number one because often there's more than just the obvious going on with that patient as we'll chat about in a sec. So, yes, definitely bring it in and um, it may be a um, or often is a secondary problem um, to to other underlying or, or multiple illnesses that, and, or, or husbandry issues. And I do find that a lot of these are, get back to the basics with them that they're husbandry related um that they're something's inadequate or inappropriate with that bearded dragon or other species which other species um, yeah well well other reptiles that we see that are that are that have have blocked pipes um yeah <laughs> um, um snakes um of, of various types especially the that um the python species um, um um probably most commonly um I'm trying to rack my brains and s consider whether or not we see many constipated turtles, Mark, and, I, and my answer to that would be 
Rarely, if ever. What about and you? Exactly the same. I, I was uh, trying to think about the species that we do see frequently and, uh, and generally... Um, I can think of one particular case where we did take, you know, we had a radiograph of a turtle for another reason and we found that um, it was impacted and obviously hadn't passed stool for a long time. But it's certainly not something that I would say the clients will bring to our attention. Um, they, they uh, turtles are, you know, obviously their aquatic environment, um, the nature of observing how frequently they go to the toilet is not the same as with our squamates that... Uh, are more terrestrial. But I've got a question again for you, Brendan. Um, and much the same as you with uh, bearded dragons and, and some of the python species. But it's interesting, I think, um, that uh, the, we definitely see um, as probably part of a, a, a series of issues about the vent of green tree pythons. They're one of the ones that we frequently do see disproportionately frequently for this problem. Yes, and I don't, have we touched on this before? We may have in one of the previous podcasts, or, or perhaps we spoke about it in a in a at a conference. I'm always repeating myself, so we probably almost certainly have said it before. And and my answer to that would be not unsurprisingly, yes. And and my concern with those ones would be suspicious of 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 those underlying husbandry issues again, and and the diet, and and potentially variations on the you know, metabolic bone disease, calcium, vitamin D deficiencies, et cetera, um, is, um, yeah, we'll jump into the potential causes in a sec. But any others, any other species, Mark, that you regularly see of the reptiles that are, that are constipated? Well, I did want to, uh, I, there was one circumstance I wanted to mention, and I think it's a, um, and, and it's interesting because I do think that these, while we've sort of bunch them all together and the overarching clinical sign is probably the same amongst all the, you know, they're, they're not going to the toilet. I think there are a bunch of different reasons that they get to that point. Um, and interestingly enough, the Taliqua species, the blue tongue family, um, I, I can't tell you I very often see in our eastern blue tongue or blotch blue tongue here in Australia, those species don't often present constipated. Um, but uh, the, the uh, the shinglebacks, the stumpy-tailed lizards, pinecone lizards go under a various number of names, but we regularly see them have problems going to the toilet. So I think there are some little species variations, um, and uh, and I would yeah, definitely stick the stumpy tails, the beardeds, and the green tree pythons in a in a bit of a watch out for these guys list. Yes, and I'm sure there'd be. Different species um, in, in other regions of the world, apart from here in Australia, where, where, where I'm sure that they're seen regularly. Other species that we don't commonly see that are that are also bound up as well, Mark. Yeah. So, what do they present with? I mean, what what, what so what's that classic you'd mentioned about that client who rings up and says my my um, my better dragons um, constipated? What's the clinical signs? <laughs> That's a great question, Brendan. Um, and it's interesting because uh, the the client will regularly ask that specific, you know, my that I need to see a vet because my lizard is constipated; it hasn't gone to the toilet. Um, and obviously, the the it's a good thing that that client is watching the enclosure and watching the lizard so closely, and probably removing the the. Uh, 
the uh, droppings as a result of the nature of bearded dragons being very susceptible to parasite problems, and they might be immediately aware that uh, that they're not going to the toilet normally, but very often they will describe other clinical signs, um, and they my. Uh, worry is that they often interpret uh, body position changes which might be associated with those predisposing causes with um, attempts to strain to go. Um, I, I, we don't, the ones that we actually get into hospital and have a look at, we don't often see them straining to go, um, but uh, the clients will often interpret various leg stretches or uh, body position changes as, oh, my lizard seems to be trying to go and is in pain. And so that you alluded to the metabolic bone disease problems as being part of the predisposing causes. And um, and I think that uh, the trembling that many you know bearded dragons will have as a result of that is often interpreted by clients as a painful response to a bowel full of droppings that need to go. Yes, and I think the other related comment that I'd have with that is um, some, especially new new owners of reptiles do not have much of a concept of, of how often um, that particular species may be passing feces. Um, and the classic there may be a snake and they think, oh, gee, you know, um, I, I fed my snake two days ago and it hasn't had a poo. Um, well, it may not be ready to have a poo yeah. yet. <laughs> it's going to take a few more days than that. Um, and, and to a certain extent, the same with some of the lizards that, you know, the, and, and the frequency or regularity of, of, of defecation in them is, is, will be different than, than the mammals. So, um, I, th I think some of them you just need to educate them that, hey, this is a normal variation for the particular species that you have and this, this species that you have in front of you or have at home is is potentially only going to defecate, you know, one, one once or twice a week or once or twice every every five to seven days or whatever after it's fed. So I think that's another another point you need to need to stress to some of the, the novice um, reptile owners, Mark, as well. And following on from that uh, is the the uh, do you recognize a particular subset of cases um, with maybe more adult animals, particularly pythons. This is something we see with pythons um, where they are genuinely constipated um, and they develop these um, relatively rock hard um, droppings that probably are predominantly um, urates but contain some feces as well. Have you seen cases like that, Brendan? Yes, most definitely. So, and the, uh, you know, I, I think those some of those, and we'll talk about treatment last. I think, oh, well, be, and then prevention, I suppose, together, is they can be. There's quite... almost zero chance that we're going to follow any logical progression here. It's just going to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. they can they can be a challenge, can't they, to deal with those ones when you, and and you can literally, yeah, you can literally palpate those fecoliths or whatever you want to call them in those and they they are literally rock hard as you describe with them so yeah they they're they're hard ones hard ones to deal with mark um yeah they are yeah and yes the answer is yes i see them um let's jump around again and and talk about some of the potential causes and and getting back to some of the more simple 
sort of um, processes or causes. And the obvious one there is is inadequate environment and, and also inadequate um, or inappropriate um, feeding. So my, my classic one there would be a, a bearded dragon owner, for instance, who has, who has um, bound up his or her, her bearded dragon just by feeding it, you know, a, a large number of crickets, uh, mature crickets at one time. So they've they've got a belly full of these um, um, chitinous exoskeletons that just um, that just block it up. And um, you know, I, I, I'm constantly stressing to clients of these insectivorous eating. Um, reptiles that they feed a variety of um, insects and not just feed one species ideally and don't feed you know 10 crickets one day and then 10 earthworms the next day and 10 mealworms or whatever the next day so um, feed feed and and so not feeding a heap of one particular thing at once especially those those um those species like the crickets where it can cause an obvious problem and um it's not infrequent at all for those really young guinea young 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 bearded dragons where um, they can end up with a a partial paralysis of of those hind legs. Do you see those? Oh, yes. And so now we're going to have to have a little bit of a talk about cause and effect here, Brendan, because because, um, I I reckon it's my... um, uh, You have a theory. My theory. One of my theories, one of my completely unbased in any scientific evidence theories. Um, I reckon that it's very hard to decide whether the um, the horse and cart are in these circumstances because there's no doubt that the lizards, those, and, and I'm sure all our listeners have some experience with these, but we'll regularly see um, young bearded dragons in particular, maybe four or five months old, and they are weak, they don't move around much. They certainly don't raise their body up. They are constipated and they are, um, uh, well, for all, uh, um, for all intents and purposes, paralysed in the back end. And I have no doubt that some of them do uh, are paralysed as a result of pressure on various uh, uh, pelvic nerves as the impaction is driven down. But I also think... Um, that uh, many of them are paralysed, probably more of them are paralysed as a direct result of the uh, spinal damage because their spine, the bones of their spine, the vertebra, are weak, pathetic, crumbly, soft, collagenous things with no calcium in them. Um, And so when the lizards move at a particular angle and those um, uh, bones bend, or even develop a pathological fracture and damage the nerves, um, the hind legs will be paralysed, but also the lizards cannot adopt the positions they need to to eliminate. So I think often the constipation is a clue that there are much, much more serious things going on in those lizards. Absolutely. I agree totally. I don't think that's a theory there, Mark. I think that's fact. (laughs) And I think it fits with... It comes back when you think of it. I'll ignore that. Um, and and I think it goes. And, and then you look at that diet, and you and and you see that that uh, that client is just feeding the crickets, for instance, and they're not supplementing them. Um, so so already I start to see alarm bells that they're feeding not a varied diet to that 
particular animal and um and 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 probably um deficient with the with the multivitamins calcium vitamin d um so yeah absolutely and and we have a young growing animal that has high requirements that's not being supplied so it's a perfect it's another tsunami mark it's a perfect um perfect, perfect storm um, storm yes um so yes so i i think it's it, it, it's i tend to be simple as you know and i separate them into obvious problems like a, a, a classic constipation from feeding a heap of things they shouldn't have fed um or that no it isn't constipated because they don't know that the fact that this animal only defecates every x days um and all the other causes which are usually as you've alluded to secondary mark to everything else and and, and other secondary problems um to that constipation but it's interesting. So it's a bit like it's the, interesting go on i didn't mean to interrupt no, I was going ahead. to say it's interesting because you do have to treat. There's no doubt that um, that very serious complications arise from the buildup of fecal material in the um, uh, you know in the large bowel of these reptiles. That there is the potential for pressure, pain. Um, there's a ready source of large numbers of bacteria just sitting there. There's um, potential damage to the. Um, you know, megacolon type injuries to these animals. So while you need to broaden your horizons when you look at them to look at the vast constellation of uh, predisposing causes, I do think that, uh, you know, focusing on that concern the client has is a really important one. Absolutely. We need to, we need to resolve that and then we start looking at the secondary problems as well yeah because it it it, it needs to be moved doesn't it it needs to be moved and we'll we'll, we'll run through a, the actual treatment of the of, of the blocked um bowel there in the feces as well um next i think yeah so let's ju- let's jump yeah let's jump into that so what what's your way of getting rid of that um that um, big lump of feces that sit in there in a bit of dragon or, or one of those um, stumpy well, tail lizards, you, Mark. What, what's your medical I'll tell approach? you what I don't do first, and I don't treat them like a toothpaste tube and squeeze it out. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think there's no surer way to uh, ensure that um, you will cause permanent problems um, than treating the uh, poor reptile as a bit of um, uh, a bit of a problem to be squeezed out. Um, I think you're almost invariably going to cause uh, permanent changes to the nerves and uh, ligaments that hold all that stuff in place. If you are lucky enough not to actually tear the bowel, um, and uh, that scarring both of the, the ligamentous structures and the mucosa, um, that's going to make sure you have repeated problems. So don't do that. Don't treat them like toothpaste tubes. Um, next, the first thing, well, this, the, the first um, medical things we do are, um, are pretty, you know, broad supportive things. We want to provide pain relief um, and we want to uh, rehydrate. Almost all of these animals have a component of dehydration um, that's associated with uh, the stools that are built up in their large bowel. Um, And so uh, rehydrating them is one of the first things that uh, we're looking to do. Pain relief and dehydration. So how do we rehydrate them? What's your options there, um, Mark? Well, that's a, I think we have talked about uh, um, 
uh, fluid therapy and reptiles at different points over the last 78 episodes. Um, one of the things I think is really important to re-emphasize and repeat is that while you can rehydrate um, uh, ill-bearded dragons by putting them into a, a bath of warm water and they actually will, their capillarity will lead the water up over their skin to their mouth and if you watch them carefully uh, over a short period of time, um, you will actually see them drink the water that rises up through their skin to their, um, their mouth. They cannot absorb that fluid through their skin. Their skin is... Uh, not an excellent system for absorbing that fluid. And they will probably also absorb a little bit, maybe per uh, cloaca, but not a whole lot, I don't think. So we don't rehydrate them by putting them into a bowl of water usually. We do use the water um, uh, for the purposes of trying to get them to exercise once we feel they're stable, um, that uh, gentle swimming motion in water that's not too deep for them to drown seems to increase blood flow and uh, activity in the abdomen so that it helps them to pass things. But it's not an excellent way to rehydrate them, Brendan. So fluid therapy otherwise, how... how do you normally approach um, In the typical fashion, the two primary ways, if the animals are still um, relatively well and it's a, um, a relatively simple case, we'll use uh, fluid uh, via a stomach tube, um, and but much more frequently because we're presented with these cases later, um, we're providing them with either intravenous or um, uh, we tend to avoid subcutaneous fluids in our reptiles. They're not; it's not a great location from which the uh, fluid is absorbed, and we're probably going to go intrasalomic in many of the reptiles that we get to see that we can't get uh, IV or intraosseous access. Yes. Now, what about the use of, of lubricants, paraffin or other oils, Mark, as part of that um, part of that regime to get I'm, things I'm, moving? I'm not a big, big fan of um, of uh, um, lubricants. I think uh, that you know the general principle of using things like paraffin in many species is that uh, it's a um, an inorganic oil, meaning um, that it's not going to be um, a mineral oil. That means it's not going to be absorbed from the gut. It's going to provide some lubrication, but I think more importantly, those oils have a cathartic effect. They're, they're a little bit unpleasant and irritant, and they start the gut uh, um, with a little bit more exaggerated contraction and the combination of a little bit of lubrication and uh, um, and the increased contraction does in many cases sh help to shift things but it certainly rules out the possibility of doing anything surgically if you have put paraffin in the gut of an animal you have to be exceedingly careful once it gets out of your surgical site uh, you're in deep trouble with paraffin anywhere in the coelom or um, abdominal cavity, depending on the species. So I'm not a big fan of those. I don't mind a little bit of, um, of uh, you know, the standard sort of obstetrical lubricant that's, um, uh, what's the fibre that's, um, there's a... Um, Cilium, exactly, yeah. is it? Um, no. That's those uh, um, fibrous, the fibre-based um, 
you can store them as powder and make them up so that you can use them for the um, thermometers we use or whatever. Those uh, lubricants are good. The only thing I'm careful about with those is that in a dehydrated patient, they can absorb more fluid um, from the animal and create a, 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 particularly in very little uh, reptiles, our hatchling bearded dragons, they can facilitate further dehydration. So um, they should only be used as a, a adjunct to after hydration has been normalised. Um, I do um, very carefully use very fine feeding tubes to instill them into the, the uh, terminal part of the um, lizards or snakes to digestive system um, and and I do think that they make a bit of a difference um, but I can't emphasize enough that um, the first step is making sure they're hydrated. Brandon have you left me yet again? I'm here Mark I just had um, I just had it on mute as usual um, so those snakes with those concretions in those hard rocks there, what do you do with well, those? Well, I first ones? of all talk to the clients of Hairbit because I think they, while they're acute events, um, I think that they're the result of, a, uh, as we talked about before, a bunch of husbandry factors. And one of the ones that probably doesn't strike most people is that um, uh, snakes in particular will... Um, you know, they, they don't move much unless they have to, and particularly if they're kept in a drawer system or, um, you know, relatively small enclosures to facilitate their sense of secrecy. Um, they, they, if they're inactive, um, then they'll, their circulation will shut down um, and, uh, and things can sit in the one spot for an awful long time. And if they, as many of them are, uh, our reptiles have a much wider range of tolerances for hydration status. And so where, you know, I think most of us small animal veterinarians would think that 10% um, uh, dehydration for our dogs and cats is just what happens before they leave this mortal coil. Um, I reckon we probably see our reptiles get to maybe double that before they're um, about to expire. And so a normal a relatively normal looking animal in its enclosure might still be five or six or 7% dehydrated. And if they're immobile and dehydrated and sit in the one spot for a long time, they're going to get into trouble, Brendan. So I think. Yes. So do you cut, cut them open? <laughs> Once they're in trouble, I, 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 I really spend yes. a fair bit of time uh, doing the same things we talked about, trying to uh, hydrate them, give them some pain relief, um, instill some. Uh, instill some um, lubricant uh, and um, in particular um, just be very gentle with that bowel. I know those concretions, the urate um, liths or the fecal liths, um, they're one of the favourite things that herpers love to just wrap their hands around the snake and give it a good squeeze and get out. Uh, but the intestinal lining is um, very, very fragile. And I've had a client come bring... They've done the toothpaste routine, brought the concretion in with a bit of a smile and their face, but the, the snake wasn't doing real well. And right next to the, um, the, uh, the, the stone that they'd managed to squeeze out was two or three lobes of the snake's kidney. So it can do quite a bit <laughs> of damage if you uh, do this sort of thing carelessly. 
Yes, I'm sure, I'm sure that snake wasn't too happy with what happened there. Yes. Um, well, <laughs> I'm just trying to visualise um, bits of a kidney um, being brought in with, with one of those um, concretions um, or urolits. Um, yes. So I think the key is that um, there's often lots of underlying factors with these. Um, it's not just a simple constipation. Um, actually, there's one other bit you sort of hinted at there, Mark, in that um, um, some of these I do take to surgery and um, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that because some certainly are not going to get there with um, with um, medical therapy because um, the, the, the intestinal contents have just adhered um, to the gut and and it's just stuck on there and um, no matter how much we're trying to rehydrate or lubricate um, we can't get them out I suppose a little bit similar to what we spoke about with some of those dystochias um, and we have to get in there and they they can be I don't give them a great prognosis with some of them because I find them a bit of a challenge um, when I do have to take them to surgery with them but having said that uh, um, a lot of these reptiles that uh, have constipation i think it's a take it slow um you know start off with the you know um with the obvious there and rehydrating the animal trying to lubricate things talking to the client um, assessing what other secondary conditions are in the background there and it might may be one of those metabolic bone disease cases that's secondarily um constipated there and you have a lot of talking to do to the client there mark don't you but um you know, it's not it's not it's not like a dog, is it, where we get in there and we we do an enema that same day. Yeah, yeah, but are you there? I just, I just, I, I, are you there? <laughs> I mean, you I thought I was wrapping up there, didn't you? Um, no, it's not. <laughs> I, you, you've hit the nail on the head. I think um, that the mucus, uh, hydrated mucus in the large bowel, provides an excellent lubricant that allows the feces and urates to pass um, and if the animal is a little bit dehydrated um, then that mucus dries out into an almost super glue like material and it is um, you know that's why the lining of if you do the toothpaste thing you're going to peel the mucosa off because it's bloody stuck with that dried mucus directly to the feces or uro, uro, uro um, the urate stone um, and I think it is worth in many of those cases it is worth um, uh, being very persistent with hydration and allowing uh, even 24 hours uh, for the the uh, the mucus to be rehydrated and to see if uh, things can be separated. I have taken, I do tend, I'd, I'd be interested in your opinion about the surgeries because I find the, the ones that we take to surgery where the, the um, obstruction is very close to the vent tend to go badly. And we do have a subset of them that come in that I think the combination of uh, the obstruction the obstruction to flow of ingester, the obstruction to local blood flow um, and time mean that we end up with a, a necrotic piece of bowel um, and those ones, geez, there's even, uh, I haven't had one where I could resect the dead bit and get, uh, get things to return to normal. But I do have more success the further I am away from the vent if we do have to open them up, Brendan. Yes, yes. Well, not surprisingly, I agree. Um, they can be they can be very very difficult. Um, it's similar to those severe 
cloacal, cloacal infections, the cloacitis, um, ones they can be a nightmare to deal with. Um, yes, it's. Um, I, I think the key there is, and and oh, virtually all of these, I do recommend to the clients that we that we do full bloods on on those patients as well, looking for those underlying conditions. So I think it's a matter of of. Well, it's a typical thing we always talk about with the unusual pet. Look for underlying issues with them. Look for husbandry-related concerns, um, inadequate, inappropriate environment and um, inappropriate diet, um, long-term issues that are potentially causing the constipation. And it is not like, you know, um, a dog or a cat that's um, that's, um, done something silly and been fed something um, it shouldn't have and it needs a it needs a hose up its butt mark so yes and as you summarized or mentioned several times steer clear of the toothpaste method um well i think we've spoken enough crap for today mark and um we will talk to you all next week